9, verses 11 through 15. Hebrews 9, 11 through 15. Hear the word of the Lord. But when Christ came as high priest of the good things that are now already here, he went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that is not made with human hands, that is to say it is not a part of this creation. He did not enter by means of the blood of goats and calves, but he entered the most holy place once for all by his own blood thus obtaining eternal redemption. The blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkled on those who are ceremonially unclean sanctify them so that they are outwardly clean. How much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God? For this reason, Christ is the mediator of a new covenant, that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, now that he has died as a ransom to set them free from the sins committed under the first covenant. This is the word of the Lord. In many ways, this message and this text is asking us a question. How do we get back into God's presence? How do we get back into God's presence and live into his purposes once again? Now, some of you who have been around here have seen me kind of outline the story of Scripture in, in four parts, but, but let me just do it briefly. We have, we have the creation where God made everything good and right, and, and people were in God's presence, and they were living according to his purposes It didn't take long until they started questioning and wondering if what God said was true and and they stopped following his purposes and they they started taking creation as their own possession and, and tried to be like God. We often call that the fall. The consequences of that fall were catastrophic. It sent us out of God's presence out of that daily communion with God and, and into a world where we struggled to follow God's will. Even as God continued this long road of redemption, this long movement between the fall and, and the time of Christ where, where God continued to try to make things new through us and, and giving us the law even, God's people once again and again and again turned their back on God. God finally steps into the story himself in a powerful way in the person of Jesus Christ where he promises to make all things new and through Christ's life, death, and resurrection he initiates the beginning of the new creation. And we find ourselves living in this space between Christ's death, resurrection, and ascension and the time when he'll come back and we'll live in the freedom of that new creation where everything will be made right again, as Edward prayed. And we look forward to that day when Christ returns, that new creation is finally here, and and we are back in God's presence fully. And not only fully in God's presence, but we are experiencing life 
as it was meant to be, according to God's purposes. But as we live in this space, between Christ's ascension and Christ's return, we still have the sin on us. We still live in ways and turn our back on God time and time again. Even though Christ has forgiven us, even though we experience that forgiveness, we still experience the guilt, the fear, the shame that comes with being people who have sinned, who have turned our backs on God. And this text is is asking the question, how do we live in this space, in the presence of God, and according to God's purposes? We'll walk through the the text here, but we're going to highlight a few other places to help us understand this text. We'll take a look at the language of unclean and clean. It's language that doesn't make sense to us today, but it's in this text, and it's an important concept to understand. We're going to take a look at, a little bit at the idea of making atonement, and, and that funny word, atonement. And then we'll talk about eternal redemption and eternal inheritance, those words that come up in this text, and we'll end with this return to the presence and purposes of God. Numbers 19 is one of the passages that really highlights the idea of unclean and clean. Before the verses that are on the screen, it gives instruction to Eliezer, who is Aaron's son, to go out and sacrifice a red heifer. All right, scripture can be specific at times. Apparently a brown one doesn't do, a black and white one doesn't do. You need a red one here. And this red heifer, you're supposed to take it and sacrifice it and gut it, which was part of it. It was a bloody mess. Literally bloody mess when they sacrificed these things. He's supposed to kill the heifer in front of everybody, take out all the parts, and then, then take the bones and the hide and everything to a place outside of the camp. And if you remember last week when we talked about the wilderness and the space outside of the camp, it was a space of death. It was a space of saying, you have been removed from God's presence. And so this heifer, its body and pieces are brought outside of the camp. And it's, it's brought out there to a place that, that is still ceremonially clean, which means they had to do some cleansing of it first. And they burn everything on this wood fire. And they burn it there, and then the ashes are taken. And they take, along with the ashes, they pour some water on it and some hyssop and a few other things, and they make this mixture that they're supposed to take back into the camp. But the priest, when he does all this, has to go through a whole washing and cleansing before he can re-enter the camp. And in fact, he has to stay outside the camp until evening. Evening, remember, is the start of the new day. He's removed from God's presence for the whole day with the sins of God's people. He's allowed to re-enter in evening. And there's another person who has to come with and help clean up all of this stuff. And that person, too, is unclean until evening, at which time they can re-enter. And then you get to this. And this is, this is now what do you do with all these ashes? What do you do with all these ashes? What, what's their purpose? And it says this, For the unclean person, put some ashes from the burned purification offering into a jar and pour fresh water over them. 
Then a man who is ceremonially clean is to take some hyssop, dip it in the water, and sprinkle the tent and all the furnishings and the people who were there. He must also sprinkle anyone who has touched a human bone or a grave or anyone who has been killed or anyone who has died a natural death. You suddenly see they've gone from sin to death. And not just death, but anyone who's been in the vicinity of death is caught up in this uncleanness and needs to be cleansed somehow. A couple of remarks on this. One, unclean means you are unacceptable to be in God's presence and you are unacceptable for God's purposes. Think back to the garden a minute. Just what we talked about, this creation story. You have creation where Adam and Eve are actually with God and it says they heard God walking in the cool of the day. In other words, they had such an intimacy with God that they could be in God's presence and and kind of go throughout God's creation without any worry, without any fear, without any hesitation. God, God was their friend. They could hang out with God. And then the fall comes, and, and one of the consequences of that fall is that they are removed from the garden, which is a biblically symbolic way of saying being removed from God's presence. They're removed from the presence. So someone who is unclean is, is in essence being told, you need to be removed from God's presence. You need to be taken out of here. And it's really for your own safety. Because God's holiness and God's goodness is such that it will consume you. An unclean person is unacceptable in God's presence and for God's person. It's the sin that makes a person unclean, but it's also the consequences of sin. Do you remember the the lie that the serpent tells Adam and Eve in the garden? Did God really say that? Surely you won't die. Sin and death are intimately interwoven at the very start of Scripture, and both of them have the same effect. That sin and death were never meant to be part of our experience of God or his creation, but because we have sinned, we have also ushered death in. And so when we are in the presence of death, we are in the presence of the brokenness of creation. It is a physical, tangible reminder that things with God, the God of life and creation, are not right. And we have been caught up in it. So how does someone become clean? Clean means you're acceptable to God's presence and for God's purposes. If you read Leviticus, and I won't ask for a show of hands to see how many of us have actually read Leviticus, but when you read Leviticus, it uses this language of clean and unclean quite frequently. Numbers uses it quite frequently. It's a way of talking about what's your standing with God. Are you right with God or are you not right with God? And the way someone becomes clean again, there's a couple ways. One is through ceremonial washing, which is what we just read about in Numbers 19. That, that cleansing with hyssop and the, white, the water that are, are covered with the ashes of this red heifer. It's part of the cleansing process. 
But the other part of it is all these sacrifices for sin and guilt. And they have all sorts of sacrifices for sin and guilt. Bring a goat, bring a bull, bring a lamb, bring a dove, bring a pigeon. It all depends on, on the gravity of the sin and how intentional you were, com- you were in committing that sin. Or if it's something you did and later on went, Oh my goodness, what did I do? And they have all sorts of regulations around it. But with all of them, there is a sprinkling of blood, sometimes on the person, sometimes on the altar, sometimes on the curtain to the Holy of Holies. There's a sprinkling of blood, or there is the sprinkling of the ashes and the water-filled ashes as a way of symbolizing that you have been included in the death You have been included in the judgment that has been given to this animal against you on your behalf. Sometimes we use a a fancy or theological title to call it substitutionary atonement. It's a big theological title, which means something has died in your place. And to symbolize that you are included in that death, you're sprinkled with blood, or you're sprinkled with ashes. We actually have a little bit of a carryover of that in our day and age. Sometimes we have the the baptismal font here, and we fill it with water. And, And we have that water pour over a child or an adult. And when that water goes on somebody, we say that they have been included in Christ's death. They have died with Christ. It's the same idea, that substitution, Christ dying on our behalf. It goes all the way back to this text. But it's that death and our inclusion in that death that allows for new life or allows us to be brought back into God's presence and to live once again for God's purposes. Leviticus 4 expands on this a little bit more. If the anointed priest sins... Anointed priest is another way of saying the high priest. If the high priest sins, bringing guilt on the people, he must bring to the Lord a young bull without defect as a sin offering for the sin he has committed. And when you read through the text, it's an elaborate process that he has to go through to make sure that that he is cleansed, going to the Holy of Holies curtain and sprinkling that with blood, touching the altar and sprinkling that with blood, pouring out more blood around the base of the altar, removing the parts outside of the camp. It's a whole elaborate process to go, I've sinned and my sin as the leader of God's people at that time has made everybody guilty. It's brought everybody in contact with this death that we are not supposed to be in contact with. And it's putting all of us in jeopardy of being in God's presence. When you go through the text, it adds in, if the whole community sins unintentionally, so everybody together, we're all guilty, all y'alls, we've done that a few times here, it's all of us together are guilty. Then there's another prescription for how to go about it, which also involves a sacrifice. When a leader, which, which meant kind of a leader of a family clan, they had 12 tribes, if one of the leaders of a tribe sins, there's another prescription for how to go through this. Or if any member of the community, and they add in another layer, 
They were very clear that, that there were all sorts of ways that we could become guilty of sin and be pushed out of God's presence or in danger of being removed from God's presence. And in order to stay in God's presence, something had to die. There needed to be an experience of death. And so there was. Each of these situations included some variation of this sentence as a way of talking about it. In this way, once they've done all the sacrifices, once the animals have been sacrificed, the blood's been distributed and sprinkled the way it's supposed to be, the priest will make atonement for the sin they have committed and they will be forgiven. Atonement and forgiveness. Atonement is essentially this. It's the restoration of relationship between God and people through the removal of sin and its consequences. So it's saying that, that the death is brought outside of the camp. The sins are brought side outside of the camp. The, the brokenness in your relationship between you and God is removed from God's presence so that you can stay in God's presence and continue to live as God's people. It's a whole lot, isn't it? It's a lot of heavy teaching that we normally don't do on a Sunday morning. Part of the reason for spending so much time in it is to understand the depth of the brokenness that happens between us and God when we sin. Admit it myself, sometimes I don't even like using the word sin. I, I prefer, yeah, God and I aren't right right now. There's, there's a little bit of a disagreement between God and me. I did something I probably shouldn't have. Mia culpa, okay. And, and we have a way culturally of diminishing the impact of our sin. Saying it's not really that bad. I did more good this week than I did wrong. I'm okay. I'm okay with God. Things are all right. Don't worry about it. And we tend to slough off the significance of our sin and how damaging it is to our relationship with God, to our relationship with other people, to our relationship with creation itself. From the very beginning of God's story, when sin occurs, death follows on its heels. If you read carefully in the Genesis 3 account where that first sin occurs, right after it, it says, God made clothing for Adam and Eve out of animal skins in order for their sin to be covered. Animals had to die right away. There was death. We typically don't think about that when we sin, do we? that we have ushered death into our relationships with each other. When we gossip about somebody or say, hey, did you hear? We don't think about the fact that we're ushering death into that relationship. When we fail to trust God to provide for us, to care for our future well-being, that prayer that comes out of the Lord's Prayer, give us today our daily bread, and to find contentment in God providing for us day to day. When we fail to trust God, we're ushering death into our relationship between us and God. 
I may dress up as the Grim Reaper on Halloween some year. But the reality is our sin, whether it's to God, whether it's in our hearts or our minds, whether it's in our conversations or actually in our actions, is ushering death into creation. And the only way that we escape that death is through Christ's death and resurrection on our behalf. Two verses in this passage help us to understand what's happening here and how Christ's death is different than all the Old Testament sacrifices. In fact, all the Old Testament sacrifices were pointing towards the time when Christ would come. He did not enter by means of the blood of goats and calves, but he entered the most holy place once for all by his own blood, thus obtaining eternal redemption. He did not enter by means of blood and goats and calves. He didn't have to go through the same process everyone else did to stand in God's presence and to carry out God's purposes because he was right with God. He was without sin. 2 Corinthians 5, when it's talking about the ministry of reconciliation that God gives to us, says that, that Christ became sin for us, even though he was out without sin. He took on the sin. He took on all the consequences of our sin on himself. He bore that separation from God so that we could be in God's presence and remain in God's presence. And because he didn't have to make atonement for himself, he didn't have to do all those exercises and be exiled from the camp for himself. He was able to do so, not just once, but once for all. It talks about an eternal redemption and an eternal inheritance. These things that Christ did in his death by becoming that atonement sacrifice for us made it so that we could be in God's presence, not just until we sin again, but even when we sin again, that we could remain in God's presence because Christ's forgiveness, Christ's death has already covered us. He has already forgiven us. He has already made us whole for the sin we will do five minutes after the service has ended, for the sin we will do in a week, for the sin we will do 10 years from now, or if Lord willing and, and we live to be 97 years old, for the sin we will commit when we're 97 on the day we're about to die. Christ, Christ's death, his atoning sacrifice has already forgiven us, has already made us right with God. Because of Jesus Christ's death, our forgiveness and reconciliation with God are no longer temporary or situational. It no longer depends on us being able to make sure we do everything perfectly. Our standing with God, our ability to be in God's presence is, is no longer stuck on our ability to keep God's laws. Instead, it's rooted in God's grace in Jesus Christ. Not only this, but it returns us to the presence of God by giving us a clear conscience. There's part of the, the Dutch Reformed tradition that the Christian Reformed Church comes out of. Part of that Dutch Reformed tradition taught, actively taught, that you don't take communion until you are on your deathbed. 
You don't take communion until you are on your deathbed because you want to make sure that you are perfectly right with God and you know you can't do it on your end and and you receive it as a, a bit of grace right at the end. But your whole life, you live with such a guilty conscience that you are painfully aware that you are a sinner. And so they would have the communion table set up and only the oldest and elderly members, the ones who were seen as upstanding members of the community, would dare to come forward to take that communion. The rest of them would just pass the plate along, being aware of their sin. The conscience was guilty. And yet, what the good news of this text is, is that even when we have sinned, we're able to come before God with a clear conscience and say, Lord, forgive me. I'm coming before you with confidence, not because of what I've done, but, but recognizing what I've done, I'm still coming before you to receive your grace because you are compassionate. You are forgiving. And in Jesus Christ, I know you have made me right with God. I come with a clear conscience, not because of me, but because of you and your love and your sacrifice in Jesus Christ. What gets me in this passage is it's not only he cleanses us from our conscience, but he ushers us into serving God again. There's two words in the New Testament that are used for serve. One is diakonia. It's where we get deacons from. It's the hands-on, waiting on tables, meeting the physical needs of others. The other is the one that lies behind this. And the idea here is priestly service. It's used most often in the New Testament to describe worship. And in fact, in quite a few places, that's how it's translated. Your worship before God. But in this text, it talks about so that we may serve the living God, so that we may become priests in God's presence, so that we may live as a priest does before God, with clear conscience, with with joyful service, mediating to others the grace of Christ that has been mediated to us by Christ. Priestly service. Not only can we come before God with a clear conscience, but we can actually live now in God's presence, carrying out God's purposes because of Christ's death and resurrection. We are ushered back into that place we had at the beginning. We're Adam and Eve. We're in the garden we're in God's presence, joyfully living with God, cultivating life and creation, experiencing God's presence as a friend who is with us. Someone that we could see and be with and experience and encounter without fear, without needing to hide, without any of the things that hold us back from following God faithfully. And the good news in this text is because of Jesus Christ's death and resurrection, even though we're not yet at the place where sin has been removed and death is no more and crying and pain have been gone, we can live now in God's presence, experiencing his presence with us and serving him even as Christ did. Serving and fulfilling God's priestly role for us transition though because Christ has offered the sin and the guilt sacrifice in his own body once for all 
The sacrifices we bring are no longer for sin and for guilt to make amends. The sacrifices we bring are for thanksgiving. There's a whole nother set of sacrifices if you read Leviticus and Numbers. A whole nother that are, are all caught up in giving God thanks for his faithfulness to us, for his provision to us. There's a whole set of offerings that are being brought because God has been good. And the transition for us as priests in God's kingdom is that we are no longer coming before to try and make amends with God. We are coming before God because amends have been made. And we are coming with thanksgiving to say, God, you are good and you are faithful. And we live lives of ongoing sacrifice with thanksgiving. Romans 12 perhaps states this in a way that's familiar to us. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, and right before this, the therefore refers to this whole story that's told of God's grace being extended to Jews and Gentiles in Jesus Christ, and it's a mystery that God is reconciling all things to himself in Christ. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Back to that same idea. This is how we live in God's presence. As priests in his kingdom, this is how we live day to day. It is, it is as an act of worship, of thanksgiving to God, saying, Lord, thank you that you have taken my sin away. Thank you that you removed sin's consequences and that you are making all things right and new again. Thank you that you allow me to live in your presence and to live for your purposes once again. You are good. And our lives become an act of worship, not just a gathering here on Sunday morning, but a whole way of living in thanksgiving. You might say, so how do we do this? Where do we start? Honestly, quite often, I, I personally default to a passage in James. Look after the widows and orphans. I find one tangible thing that I can say, my thanksgiving is going to pour out in this direction. Some of us may have other passages that, that resonate in our hearts and we say, I'm going to live this way. This is the passage that kind of, kind of grabs hold of me. This is how I'm going to live my sense of calling and purpose. Historically, however, the church has answered this question this way. Where do we start? We start with the Ten Commandments. Not as a thing that guilts us. Not as a thing that condemns us or judges us the Ten Commandments as a way of living with thanksgiving in God's presence and for God's purposes. Earlier in January, we, we prayed a prayer here uh, of thanksgiving. And we used the Ten Commandments to shape that prayer of thanksgiving, inviting us through that prayer to give thanks to God and to live responsively to God's goodness. And we're going to close this message with that same prayer again. Please play, pray responsively with me. And God spoke all these words 
I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, who brought you out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an image of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. Honor your father and your mother so that you may live long in the land the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house or anything that belongs to your neighbor. All this we pray for the glory of the one true God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the full unity of God's people, and the flourishing of God's kingdom. Amen. the deacons who are